You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. In connection with this sermon this afternoon, which will be on the Word of God as it's summarized and confessed in Lord's Day 5 about the justice of God, let's read together two scripture passages. First from Romans 2. We'll read from verses 1 through 16 there, and then we'll turn to Romans 8. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them, and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when His righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. And if you would turn a few pages to the 8th chapter of Romans, we'll read there the verses 1 through 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so He condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Our text this afternoon is the Word of God as it's summarized and confessed in Lord's Day 5 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Since according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment, how can we escape this punishment and again be received into favor? God demands that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, we must make full payment either by ourselves or through another. Can we by ourselves make this payment? Certainly not. 
On the contrary, we daily increase our debt. Can any mere creature pay for us? No. In the first place, God will not punish another creature for the sin which man has committed. Furthermore, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. What kind of mediator and deliverer must we seek? One who is true and righteous man, and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who has at the same time true God. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what does God's justice mean to you? What does God's justice mean to you? If you were to walk down the street in Langley on an average day and poll, say, ten people about the meaning of justice and what God's justice means to them, I would guess that you would get probably several different answers. But I can almost guarantee you that there would be one answer that you would get for sure, if not from several people. It would go something like this. I've lived a good life. I try my best. I'm not a bad person. I try not to hurt people. So I expect that when I die, God will be favorable to me. What does God's justice mean to that person? That's an important question to ask because God's justice is an important thing for us to understand. Well, for that person, God's justice either is not consistent with God's holiness, because how can a God be holy and yet have such a low level of justice? Or, indeed, perhaps to that person in their conception of God, God's not very holy to begin with. In that person's mind, God is essentially, God's justice is essentially what they want it to be. They probably haven't given it much thought, but they know enough that this is how they want God's justice to be, and so they create the standard for His justice. And if you were to ask a series of questions to this person, if you were to ask them to explain a little further what they mean, you'd probably find that it's not very well thought out. And so, you would need to ask yourself, is that a conception, is that an understanding of God's justice that I could live with? Well, perhaps you could, but only on a very superficial level. You would have to stop yourself from thinking very deeply about it. Indeed, if we go deeper... And especially if we allow the Bible, God's Word, to inform our understanding of what God's justice is, then we'll realize that the sort of answer that says, I'm a good person, God will be good to me, just doesn't do it. It doesn't do it for us. It doesn't do it for anyone else. You can't look deeply and honestly at yourself and not get a sense of God's justice against you. Some of you know that. You know all too well of your own sinfulness and your own weaknesses. And perhaps others of us don't. 
And we need to be reminded of that fact, and perhaps we need to look deeper at ourselves. We need to understand God's justice and His rightful justice against us in our sinful nature. But we ought not to stop there. Because it's only by understanding God's justice that we can truly appreciate His love and mercy. It is as John Calvin once wrote, Since our hearts cannot, in God's mercy, either seize upon life ardently enough or accept it with the gratefulness we owe, unless our minds are first struck and overwhelmed by fear of God's wrath and by dread of eternal death, we are taught by Scripture to perceive that apart from God, from Christ, God is, so to speak, hostile to us and is armed for our destruction in order that we might embrace His benevolence and fatherly love in Christ alone. And so we'll ask ourselves this afternoon, what does God's justice mean to us? We'll consider the depth of God's justice, the demands of God's justice, and the deliverer from God's justice as outlined in Lord's Day 5 of the Heidelberg Catechism. So first then, the depth of God's justice. Indeed, in asking this question, what does God's justice mean to you? We can't simply sit back and be armchair theologians, stick a pipe in our mouth and just think up lofty thoughts of God's justice. We can't do that. We won't get there. We need to understand, we need to look at God's Word. And this only makes sense, of course, you'll realize, because God's Word is His self-revelation. It is in God's Word that He reveals Himself to us, and so He reveals His justice to us as well. And this really seems to be the track that the Catechism is on as well, the the understanding that we need to comprehend God's Word. Through Lord's Days 3 and 4, the questioner has been, been trying to find ways out from under his own sinful situation. Are we really that wicked and perverse? Are we really that wicked and perverse? But is God maybe not unjust? Isn't God merciful? Constantly trying to find a way out. But now here we come to Lord's Day 5, and there's a certain admission. The questioner has acknowledged that aspect of God's Word which tells us that we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. The questioner has been convicted by the testimony of God's Word, but yet still hopes that this is not the end of the story. And so we need to get into the head of this questioner as they ask these questions. To do this, imagine that you are sitting here in church this afternoon beside a friend or an acquaintance that doesn't know the gospel. And try to listen through their ears. And while we mention this, I would actually recommend such a practice. It's not only a good thing to bring your friends to church, but if you sit in church beside someone who has never heard the gospel, who has never heard the things that we hear week to week, you'll hear them through fresh ears, and they'll make a new and perhaps a dramatic impact on your own life as well. 
What would God's justice mean to you before you heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? Indeed, this is a good practice to go through. It's not only a good practice, it's a biblical practice. The biblical writers often draw us through the time before we knew God's goodness in order to understand His grace. Romans 5 verse 8, but God demonstrates His own love for in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.10, for if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? Colossians 2, verse 13, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Ephesians 2, verse 1, As for you, you were dead in the sins and transgressions in which you used to live. Now, some might protest against this. They would say, no, we are not the people who don't know about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are the redeemed of God. We cannot go back to that state. Now, that's true. We are the redeemed of God. But we should realize that the Bible often places before us our past, often calls us to remember God's hostility and His justice against us in order that we might increase in thankfulness and praise. And so it's good to take that time this time, this afternoon, to consider God's justice. And now, going back to your friend beside you in the pew. Suppose that they just heard now answer uh, answer 11 for the first time. And they believed it. They believed what they had just heard. That sin committed against the Most High Majesty of God must be punished with everlasting punishment of body and soul. That was in answer 11. Well, after hearing this news, their next question would be that first question of Lord's Day 5. Is there any way out of this mess? Is there any way that I can be spared? I realize now that I deserve punishment, but is there any way that God can spare me? Note here that that is a posture of faith. That's saying, I trust in God's word, I believe it, but I have to ask the next question. I believe God at his word, but I have to ask, does he also provide a way out for us? And so, following that first question that acknowledges that we deserve punishment, the answer comes down like a thud. God demands that his justice be satisfied. It almost seems harsh. The person is asking the question, looking for a way out, looking for some sort of hope. They're looking for hope of deliverance, and the answer speaks about satisfaction. It says, one person I read this week noted, it's the prodigal son, returning not to his merciful father, but to the minister of justice, who holds him to account for what he has done. But yet we need to ask this question as well. Is this really harsh? In a certain way, it is harsh. The person is, the questioner is looking for hope. 
But in this first answer, they don't get any. It's harsh if we begin with the understanding of ourselves, if we begin with our own sensibilities and sensitivities, and with our feelings of what's right and wrong. But if we look at this picture from God's side, if we look at this answer with a view and and awe and reverence to God's holiness and majesty and His justice, then it's not harsh at all. It's It's true. It's true. And the truth of God, no matter how harsh it might seem to us at times, is always more comforting than a lie. Especially lying to ourselves. And so that person who believes God, who knows God, who knows His holiness, who has respect and awe for His majesty, will not protest at this point. Of course God's justice must be satisfied. Otherwise, He wouldn't be God. You see... God's very nature is at stake here. Because God is just. That's what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. He makes that categorical statement. God is just. Justice is part of who He is. He's the source of justice. Indeed, if God cannot be depended on to be just, then who can be? And God is just, and He is also immutable. He is unchangeable. He is the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows, as James says. He is not an indecisive or an inconsistent Father. He cannot willy-nilly decide to just punish someone and and leave the other person to go scot-free. That would be inconsistent with His very being. So God's very nature is at stake in His justice. And flowing from His unchangeable nature, His very Word is at stake here as well. Numbers 23, verse 19. God is not a man that He should lie, nor a son of man that He should change His mind. Does He speak and then not act? Does He promise and then not fulfill? Indeed, God in His Word promised that sin would be punished. We heard it this morning in the reading of the law. Exodus 20. God will punish the sins of the idolater to the third and fourth generation. Or we can think of Ezekiel 18, verse 24. If a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits sin and does the same detestable things the wicked man does, will he live? None of the righteous things he has done will be remembered. Because of the unfaithfulness he is guilty of, and because of the sins he has committed, he will die. And indeed, the whole of God's law is based on this principle. If you sin, you must pay. Sin must be paid for. Guilt must be atoned. And so God's nature is at stake. His word is at stake. And God's actions in history support this as well. His own justice. He said to Adam, if you eat from this tree, you will surely die. Well, no sooner had Adam eaten from the the tree than God banished him from the garden and banished him from communion with himself and indeed subjected him to spiritual death except for his promise of the gospel. And again, God's law God's law, in His law, He shows that He is the final judge. 
And He will bring justice, if not in this life, then certainly in the one to come. And you can think about the punishments that He carried out on Israel and all the other nations. When Israel was disobedient against Him, God acted to uphold His honor and His justice. And the capstone of God's actions in history which support the fact that He is just. We celebrated it just over a week ago. The sending of His Son into this world. Think about this. If God would not have had to send His Son into this world, would He have sent Him? If there was another possible way that He could have done it, would God not have chosen that rather than sending His Son, the Eternal Word, the second person of the Trinity, into this world to face persecution, rejection, and death? Would God not have chosen that? But indeed, there was no other way because God's justice and His holiness is unchanging. And so you see the depth of God's justice, that it's rooted in His very nature Himself. That it is in His Word and that God has acted consistently with it throughout history. And so it is that we must make payment because God is just. There's no changing that. To not make payment is impossible because God demands that His justice be satisfied. That brings us then to our second point. We'll consider the demands of God's justice. Well, the natural next question, having examined the biblical evidence about God's just requirement, is this. Who's going to pay this debt? God's justice must be satisfied. Who's going to pay the debt? Who's going to fulfill that requirement? Can we? Doesn't it make, that who, doesn't it make sense that whoever does the time, uh, does the crime does the time, perhaps we can in some way pay the penalty for our own sins. Well, the answer to that question is yes. Yes, we can. We can pay the penalty for our sins. We can pay the penalty of sin committed against the Most High Majesty of God. It's called death. That's the penalty of sin against, committed against the Most High Majesty of God that we can pay. We can pay the penalty for our sins, but we're not able to pay that penalty without falling under the temporal and even the eternal punishment of God. So, we should be asking a different question. We shouldn't be asking if we can pay the penalty, but rather, can we make a payment that will receive us into God's favor again? The answer to that question is a resounding no. No, we can't. You might try, but you won't succeed. Here, the old motto isn't going to work. If you try and don't succeed, try, try again. You'll be trying and trying and trying all the way to your grave, and you won't have succeeded. Now, be sure that many have tried, and many are trying, and many will try to do this. The impulse that is deep in our being is to be able to achieve our own salvation. That impulse is deeply and naturally human. It's part of our rebellion against God. 
I can do it on my own. This is the basic approach of every other religion in this world besides Christianity. It's the epitome of atheism as well. Buddhism and Hinduism require you to, by yourself, through your own self-effort, achieve some sort of higher consciousness which will bring you into a better life or a better existence. Islam requires you to follow a strict set of rules in the uncertain hope that you might perhaps appease a distant and an angry God. Atheism's clarion call is that we're better off on our own. And it must promise a hope in a future that's self-made, because who else is going to give it to us? But the reality is, the reality that we know, the reality that we experience, the reality that God's Word tells us of, is that we can't do it on our own. Rather, we daily increase our debt. Psalm 130, verse 3, we sang it at the beginning of verse 2 in our singing, O Lord, if you kept a record of our sins, O Lord, who could stand? Who could stand? Romans 2, which we read together. Paul goes through all these examples. You tell other people to do this, but you don't even do it yourself. His point is that no one is able to keep the law. And so he concludes in chapter 3 that there is no one who is righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands No one who seeks God. The conclusion is that if there is someone or some creature that will make payment for us, that Savior must be unlike us. He must be unlike us because we are not able to do it on our own. The sin of Adam is natural in each one of us. And so, coming to that realization, the next question in the Catechism is quite natural. If indeed we can't make the payment ourselves, then perhaps someone or something else can. But no sooner is that question asked than we realize that that too is a a dead end for two reasons. First, it wouldn't be fair. It simply wouldn't be fair, and indeed it's not possible for another creature to make the payment that man is supposed to. If you've broken the law, you need to pay. Adam couldn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden And then ask God to just punish Eve for that. Adam and Eve had to pay. Whoever is going to be our deliverer, he needs to be someone who is like us. Needs to have our own flesh. Well, this might seem obvious to us, but perhaps it's not so obvious because someone with even a slight knowledge of the Old Testament is going to ask the question, yeah, but what about the sacrifices? Didn't God's people for hundreds and over a thousand years try to do something? Try to get someone else or something else to pay the price for their sins? What about all those animals that were sacrificed by the Jews at the temple? Was it all meaningless? Did God not prescribe that for His people? What was it all for? Well, it's true that for hundreds and Even over a thousand years, the Israelites offered sacrifices in order to atone for their sins. Well, why didn't the animals do the job? And and why did God tell them to do this? Well, it is because it was always intended to be a temporary measure. 
as Hebrews says, they pointed past themselves to Christ. God gave those sacrifices in order to teach people about atonement. That payment for sin was necessary. And also to teach them about the severity of sin. That it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you something valuable. It's going to cost you something precious. And beyond that, it was meant to point to Christ. They weren't to find their hope in the endless repetition of sacrifices year after year, but they were to look beyond them into the hope of the once-for-all sacrifice of the perfect Lamb without blemish, the One who would come. And those sacrifices did provide atonement for God's people. They did reconcile the people to God, but it was only because of Christ, because He was coming. To trust in the Word of God that told them to offer those sacrifices was to trust in the Word of God who was going to come as the final sacrifice. And so, those animals that were being sacrificed had meaning. They had use. But they couldn't ultimately do it for God's people. Indeed, those animal sacrifices or any other creature that might be sacrificed in an attempt to appease God's wrath, but they couldn't. Because they couldn't withstand the burden of God's wrath against sin. As happened with all the sacrificial lambs that the Israelites sacrificed, they died. You can just imagine, if you were an Israelite, one year you thought, this is it. I'm, I'm going to do it this year. I'm going to take the best lamb that I have. I'm going to put all my hope of atonement in this lamb. And then when the Day of Atonement comes, I will bring Him, He will be sacrificed, and I'll be free. Well, no sooner would that lamb be slaughtered, and you would be sinning again in your heart, and you would be hopeless, because you need atonement again, and again, and again, and again, every time you sin. We don't need an endless repetition of sacrifices. We need a once-for-all sacrifice, We need a mediator who's able to come and give complete and comprehensive payment for our sins. One who can give complete reconciliation between us and God. This one who will come must be unlike us. And so we come to the third point about our deliverer. So you see that it is that we need a mediator who is both like us and unlike us. He must not be a sinner like us, but yet he must be a son of Adam, a man in the flesh, in order to redeem our flesh. He must not be a man who cannot stand up under God's wrath. He must be powerful enough to endure God's wrath. He must be a man. Just as we were cast into condemnation in Adam, as we share in his sinful nature, so we need a son of Adam. We need a man to redeem us. We need a new head. We need a new representative, just like the first Adam who represents us in our sinful nature. We need a second Adam to come and redeem us. The same human nature that has sinned must also pay for sin. And just as we fell in Adam, we can only be saved by a new man. But he must also be God. That's the only way. This new man has to be more powerful than any of us is or ever has been. He must eclipse the first Adam because not only must he obey the Father in everything, but he must be able to 
bear the burden of God's wrath against sin. He needs to do something that no mere man could accomplish. And so it is, as we read in Romans 8, that God sent His Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. This mediator must be Jesus Christ. We can take off our self-imposed blinders now and see the reality of the Word becoming flesh. The miracle of Christmas is that the perfect mediator was born into the world. That the impossible became possible. That God became a man. And that the Savior, the mediator, was born. It was the only possible way for us. It was the way that caused God immeasurable grief as He had to reject His own Son. But it's the way that has caused God immeasurable glory as we see the ultimate sacrifice of sending His Son into this world to redeem us. Brothers and sisters, what does God's justice mean to you? Is it cold? Is it harsh? Is it burdensome? Is it overwhelming? No, it's not. How can it be? In Christ, God's justice means peace. In Christ, God's justice means reconciliation with God. In Christ, God's justice means adoption into God's family. In Christ, God's justice means, as the first question and answer mentioned in our Lord's Day, that we can again be received into favor. Do you see that? God's justice, because it's not separated from His love and His mercy, means that we're not only absolved of our guilt, but that we get to enjoy God's fellowship and love. Think of this as an example. Think of a wife who has cheated on her husband. Indeed, God compares us to an unfaithful wife in Scripture. After she repents and asks for forgiveness of her husband, it's beautiful if her husband does not hold her sin against her. That's beautiful. But how much more beautiful is it if the husband can forgive her and can hold her in his arms and that he can again experience a deep and intimate relationship with her? Well, because of our perfect mediator, because God became man, we experience that warm embrace of God when He receives us back into His favor. Brothers and sisters, let us be struck first by our own hopelessness, that we might better comprehend the grace of God and the work of Christ. Again, well, listen to what John Calvin says. When a man learns, as Scripture teaches, that he was estranged from God through sin, is an heir of wrath, subject to the curse of eternal death, excluded from all hope of salvation, beyond every blessing of God, the slave of Satan, captive under the yoke of sin, destined finally for a dreadful destruction and already involved in it, 
And at that point, Christ interceded as his advocate, took upon himself and suffered the punishment that from God's righteous judgment threatened all sinners, that he purged with his blood those evils which had rendered sinners hateful to God, that by his expiation he made sacrifice and satisfaction duly to God the Father, and that as intercessor he appeased God's wrath, that on this foundation rests the peace of God with men, and that by this bond, the work of Christ, his benevolence is is maintained toward them. Will this person not then be even more moved by all these things which so vividly portray the greatness of the calamity from which he has been rescued. Indeed, when we consider what Jesus Christ has done in redeeming us, then we must be moved to thanks, to repentance, to humility, to praise, and to worship. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.